Hey, this is a Hakawari production. My guest today recently announced a brand new $60 million VC fund. It's called Plus Venture Capital, and it'll focus on investing in early stage startups in the MENA region and its diaspora with a target of 120 investments over the next three years. He's the former managing partner of 500 Startups MENA Fund, which invested in over 180 startups across 15 countries, making it the most active venture capital investor in the region during its investment period, which was between 2017 and 2020. Based in San Francisco, this was the first U.S.-based venture capital firm with a dedicated fund for this region. Please give a warm welcome to Sharif El-Badawi. Hey, Sharif, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, how are you? How are things? Great, great. So 120 investments over the next three years, that seems like a lot of investments. Why so many? Most funds don't make it their priority to invest in at like a high number of startups, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, most funds employ a, a little bit more of a boutique model, uh, typically 10, 20 to 40 companies in a portfolio. Uh, for us, I mean, it's two things. One, we've done it before at a at an even larger portfolio, about a third larger than that in our previous fund, and it has to do with balancing portfolio structure uh, to mitigate risk, to diversify, uh, and because we're just at a stage and in, in a region where we want to have a bigger impact on on the base of the ecosystem, which is the seed stage where we operate. Uh, so those are primary things. Um, Part of uh, being in venture capital follows what they call a power law. And the power law dictates that, you know, seven out of 10 of the companies won't return 1x uh, their investment. And one or two of the companies may return the entire fund or will need to return the entire fund. So that means that one investment has to have a 10 to 20x return uh, potentially. So it can return the whole fund. So we said, you know, how are we going to be able to invest quickly, uh, what we call early and often, without uh, really trying to mitigate risk in front of the founder with terms and conditions and, uh, you know, pricing and all that stuff. So if, if we want to invest early and often in an emerging market where founders uh, are still sort of this nascent in the ecosystem, how can we do that uh, and, and still return uh, a quality uh, portfolio? So... By, by increasing the size of the portfolio, it does two things. One is it gives us breadth or exposure across a number of startups. The first check that we write is typically quite small compared to the size of the, the fund itself. So y you can lose a lot more first bets and still not have to follow power law. So the second prong is what gives us depth in each of the investments. Because if we had, let's say, five or ten winners um, that potentially could have returned the fund, but that check we wrote was so small, the ownership percentage is not sufficient enough to return the fund. So the second prong makes up for that by letting us double down on the winners in the in the portfolio, which is 20%, maybe 20, 30% of the portfolio. They'll receive 50 to 70% of the capital of the fund. So that that's how we build a, a portfolio structure like that. Uh, and, it, and it allows it to skew away from the power law. 
Okay, I guess that makes sense. Uh, and I'm just curious, <laughs> <laughs> in your world, so I'm just curious, why are you targeting early stage startups, um, basically seed funding? This might seem like a naive question, but why not pick startups that have already proven themselves a bit and bet on those? Yeah, I mean, well, every every ecosystem has certain gaps that you might identify. And, and if we're looking at funding gaps in this region, uh, it's all over the map. Every every stage and every sector and every geography needs more funding here. So when we're starting in a nascent ecosystem, we want to start at uh, the beginning. Uh, doesn't make sense to have a fund four years ago that is saying, I'm going to invest at Series A or Series B only because there's just not enough opportunities. And there, in fact, have been some funds who have declared that and then went back, uh, sort of ro- rolled back on that and started investing in seed. Uh, we also, because we invest in so many companies, we're, we're sort of loud and out there with our with our ourselves and our brand. Um, we try to build an ecosystem too. It's not just about investing; it's about training the founders, and you want to train them at that early stage in this kind of ecosystem. Uh, there are other economic reasons to be investing in the seed stage, and that's arguable, you know, depending on the investor. For us, when you come in early, sure, you take on a larger risk, but you also have the price advantage over others because you're coming in when when the companies are still valued lower. You're putting in a decent-sized check. You can get some ownership with that. If I were to do the exact same size check in, let's say, Silicon Valley where I was, uh, it just wouldn't work uh, for that. Uh, that size check would not have that much of an impact in the early stage. Seed stage deals in the U.S. now uh, are ranging between two to five million dollars uh, before the company maybe has even launched or has traction. So, and what it's about an here arbitrage. in the region? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a pricing arbitrage to go to markets that are less competitive and newer. And for here, um, a typical seed stage round in the Levant in North Africa might be half a million dollars to two million dollars on the high end. And in GCC, like in the UAE or nowadays in Saudi, a seed round might be one to two, one to three million dollars. So we're not quite at the U.S., Europe numbers or Asia, but um, the, the numbers are growing, uh, and they, that's a typical evolution uh, that, that, that round sizes will, will typically grow. And those who say they're investors in one stage will evolve to the next stage downstream, and new investors will come in at the earlier stages as, this, as the ecosystem evolves. So I have a couple of questions here. Why is it kind of cheaper here to start, you know, a company? And two, uh, you say that you train, you get involved a lot with the training. What does that mean exactly in the case of, you know, the fund that you are part of? Yeah, great questions. I mean, you answered the first one. So the reason why it's cheaper to enter, to invest in a startup here is because it's cheaper to operate a startup here. Um, And that comes from salaries, talent, talent. just real estate, every every aspect of what a company uh, needs to to build and to to spend on. In in mature markets, all of those things are are more impacted, and uh, and talent is more competitive, and real estate's more expensive. Licensing licensing could be different. I mean, it depends on the country. In the U.S., for example, it's super cheap to start a company, so it doesn't take much at all. And uh, but. It's the ongoing costs that become very expensive if you need an office and you need to hire staff, especially in, in, in places like uh, the East Coast or West Coast. Uh, those salaries would be very expensive. 
here uh, in the, again Levant, North Africa, Bahrain, uh, salaries are relatively affordable, um, and, and and sometimes I would say even cheap. Like if it's Egypt, um, salaries for engineers in particular, because that's like a key uh, talent type that startups hire for, is really really cheap compared to other places. Um, and their cost basis, their run rates, what we call like their 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 operational costs on a monthly basis can be very very low uh, before they start to generate significant revenue. And in other countries like in the GCC, sure the cost bases are slightly higher. Licensing fees and other fees are a, 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 a somewhat of an impediment, but you get access to markets you wouldn't be able to get if you were uh, in another country. So. There, there's this trade-off there, and there, it's a constant work in progress. We're constantly working with the governments in these different countries on how to make it easier for small businesses and startups to survive the early days. Uh, in a lot of these countries, there's no typical taxation on income, uh, but instead of that, they replace that with fixed fees. So that means that a large company like IBM or Microsoft would pay the same on an individual basis as the startup that just started yesterday, whereas in the U.S. Uh, or other taxation countries, um, you're only taxed on your profit. So a startup, we, we, we'd go for three to four years with really paying no taxes because I have costs to show, but I don't have any profit to show. Uh, so I think it's a trade-off. Um, both have pros and cons, and it just depends on the environment you're in. In this market, opportunity uh, is 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 you know the sky's the limit in terms of opportunity across e-commerce, across services and products. Uh, we really barely scratching the surface of digital penetration here. So that means that even a, a small company doing well uh, can actually gain pretty significant market share quickly if they're using technology as their product or distribution channels. Uh, for our our previous fund, to answer your second question, uh, in our in, in the last four years, what we've done to sort of help at scale with with capacity building and training uh, is run programs, which are either like boot camps or accelerator programs or investor training programs, because we feel that it's not just the founders that need the training. It's every other stakeholder in the ecosystem, like investors, enablers, uh, government. And so typically we could run programs to to help them with digital transformation and uh, corporate innovation. Um, and then that, that actually would grease the wheels for the founders because now they're in an environment that is more educated and, uh, you know, more advanced for, for our new fund. Uh, we don't plan to run any accelerator type programs, uh, from the typical sense. What we're trying to do now is think about what the next 10 years of startup training and support looks like. And the accelerator model started uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, by a company called Y Combinator, uh, 500 startups uh, where I used to work, uh, also is is very prominent globally in terms of running accelerators. Uh, accelerators typically have a fixed timeline. You you fly to a city, you stay there for three months or so, and you are learning subjects in a in a particular curriculum, whether that fits your schedule or not uh, as a startup, your timeline or not. So there's been innovation there, 500, for, for example, 500 startups. San Francisco has moved to a rolling accelerator to help accommodate founders. No matter when they get accepted in the program, they can take the modules and learnings as needed according to the timeline of their startup. For, for our new uh, you know, fund, 
what we're, we're new firm, our new firm is, is planning to just take our investments in the portfolio companies and then provide resources and uh, training to them as needed, but not through a structured program. So they'll have access to our internal portal. Internal portal will have content and resources, uh, maybe audio, written, video, that kind of stuff. And it will be a la carte, uh, module-based. So when they're ready to learn that thing, they can just pop in uh, and learn it. And that's something that, you know, we, we use a global network of experts in each of those fields to teach those things. And then we can support our founders also through an annual sort of retreat that we could do. Um, and then monthly meetups and office hours, mentor matching. Those are all just different forms of support. They all exist today. And we're thinking of ways that we can make it worth their time for the next, you know, next generation. I love how dynamic you are in creating like new systems and new ways to, uh, you know, optimize basically the results of the investments that you're making. So that's that's really fascinating. But um, what are the specific industries you listed? You know, a bunch of them before. Uh, but which specific industries will you be looking at um, in the next three years? Sure. So uh, I answer that in two ways. One is that there are three pillars that a fund might focus on. So one of the pillars is the industry, the, what we call the sector. The other would be the stage. And we touched on that earlier, right? Seed stage to series A. And the third is the geography. So when you're strict on one or two of the pillars, you want to be a little looser on the third. So you have room to be diversified. Uh, what We're strict on our stage. We always invest at seed first. We're strict on our geographic mandate, which is the Arabic-speaking MENA countries and Arab diaspora founders anywhere in the world. So then the third pillar, which is sector, we try to be more broad, and we say it's sector agnostic, meaning any sector is fine with us. There are a lot of interesting opportunities, uh, especially in this region, because so much has not been done yet, that we're open to agriculture tech, government tech, e-commerce, content, entertainment, uh, finance, healthcare, uh, you know, education, it all needs to be disrupted and, and, and innovated on. And the other way I would answer the question is that there are interests that we have and, and interests are timely ba based on what we're seeing in the market. For example, with coronavirus pandemic this year, there are certain sectors that are thriving, in particular, when the markets are down. So on on demand delivery, groceries. Uh, you've probably seen a surge in those services and demand for those services. People who would have never ordered food or groceries online had to start doing that through the pandemic. Second, with uh, a lot of homeschooling going on around the world, uh, the demand for education technology has skyrocketed. And in a way that it was actually very muted before. Ed tech or what we call education technology has had 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 always had a lukewarm reaction to from the market. It's just nobody felt that it was a necessity, right? Only when the pandemic hit did people start saying, "What is our work from home and homeschooling plan? What are the services and tools we can use?" You notice this huge spike in communication tools like voice over IP communication tools. Even so much that in the UAE they opened up the ban on voice over IP communication tools because. Everybody had to stay home and work from home. So it is a huge boost in productivity uh, to be able to adapt uh, these kinds of things to the needs of the market. For health tech as well, um, there was a, a large surge in health tech services to digitize health tech to make it in the cloud so that 
the, the information on patients and care can be shared more easily, uh, of course, securely, but easily. And so those services we saw spike in when they were actually pretty muted before. There was less interest from investors, less startups that were tackling those kinds of pain points. Um, there's just less funding all around for them in the region. Uh, and I think this effect happened worldwide. In addition to, um, I'd say, seasonality of interest in, in industries like, like this year, there are longer-term uh, patterns that we look out for. So uh, Steve Case, the founder of AOL, uh, terms it as the third wave of innovation. So if we looked at the 90s and early 2000s when I was an entrepreneur, we were in the first wave. We were building the infrastructure of the Internet, search engines, right, portals, uh, basics like that. And then in Web 2.0, where a lot of people remember or use those services today, it, it, it was all the apps. It was all the sort of um, very consumerish uh, uh, applications that people can use on the Internet, but they were specific to a service or a vertical. That was a really fun period, Web 2.0, because it enabled a couple people in a garage to just start a startup. And you could actually say you're disrupting everybody's normal patterns of behavior by just building an app and, and getting adoption without really even talking to that industry. Now we're moving to the third wave, or we're in the third wave, uh, which is described as taking incumbent industries, large incumbent industries that have not touched tech yet. Now, that, that has a different pattern to it. Like if, if you look at the rise of fintech or financial technology, health tech and education tech, those three in particular are very large industries. But they, unlike Web 2.0 phase, cannot be done with two people in a garage. You cannot go disrupt the financial industry or banks by having two people in a garage um, in silo. Instead, what happened, I think, after the initial breakout of fintech, which the rhetoric was, we're going to disrupt the banks. Well, that, that rhetoric quickly changed in, the, in about a year or two. And it was, we're working with the banks. We're going to work with uh, the credit card providers. We're going to work with, you know, so-and-so. And that's because those industries, you can't just barge in and say, we have an app and it's going to kill you all. Um, those are re highly regulated industries. They need participation, partnership and collaboration with the incumbents. And the incumbents also have a, a desire and a need to work with the innovators because they know their businesses will eventually uh, get disrupted and, and become fossilized and need to change. So it's a, to me, it's a really impactful phase of technology and innovation because you're going to get incumbents working with innovators in every sector. And that's a really interesting one for us. So when we talk about agriculture tech, reg tech, which is regulation or government tech, uh, education, healthcare, and fintech, and that's why we name those uh, a lot of times, is because those are those can change a lot of people's lives. Uh, they touch a lot of people's lives. And in this region, if we just took a regional lens on what's here, well, the region has been very good at real estate, has been very good at public finance markets and banking has been very good at some of the logistics and transportation infrastructure uh, around construction tech. Construction and some of those industries were born because of the oil and gas industries, right? So they're peripheral to it. 
Well, if all of that is going to change one day, if we believe that fossil fuels, reliance on fossil fuels is going to to wane and decrease, be replaced by uh, more efficient uh, forms of energy, then what is going to happen to all those peripheral businesses that were built on that? So that must change as well. So we try to try to think of pa- about patterns like that and um, how to have a really big impact uh, with the innovations. We we want founders to to be building companies not because they think it's cool and fame, you know, they can get fame or fortune from it, but because they've they've felt a, or identified a real pain point in the market, and that market is either large. Or is maybe it's not large, but is going to be large. It's a growing market that yeah. they noticed yeah. that will come uh, people may not see. So, yeah. And to build on that, it seems like everyone you did, you know, like, as you said, a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to have a startup, I'll, you know, make tons of money. Everyone wants a startup these days. And I think that's a, partly a result of the tech revolution or digital revolution, which we also call the fourth industrial revolution. And it also seems like nobody wants to work for anyone else anymore. You know, the, this generation, they're very, they want to be like master of their own domains, I guess, and, and master of their own uh, fate. But um, so with all these people, People, you know, having a startup, um, obviously, some of them are really good maybe at selling the idea. But what makes a startup interesting for a VC like yours? What are the key ingredients? Well, we look at uh, what we call the basics. So it's like five things. We look at the team. We look at the, the problem that they say they're going to solve. Or is it a real problem? We look at the solution they're proposing to solve it, which is usually the product or service. And then we look at, is this a market? As I mentioned, is it going to be a large market or Is it a growing market that maybe the founders are ahead of the curve? Like it's not a market today, but it will become one. Um, and then we look at technology. And finally, we look at traction. The reason we look at traction is because to us at this early stage that we invest in, traction is a great proxy for the other four. So if if somebody has traction, which is defined to us as you know either a minimum of three months of revenue or users growing at 20 to 30% per month, Uh, with a decent base, so not starting with one dollar growing to three dollars. It's it's five to ten thousand dollars a month minimum, growing for a consistent three plus months at twenty to thirty percent month over month. That is an indication to us that they have been able to come together as a team. They've been able to build a product. They've identified a market that wants that product. It's in the hand of users or customers, and those users or customers are receptive to it. And we see that, of course, if there's revenue and that revenue is recurring uh, month over month, that is a clear sign that those things exist. It doesn't mean the team is amazing. It doesn't mean uh, the product is perfect either. You know, none of those things. But it does mean that at least the loop is working, that they've identified something, somebody's willing to buy it, right, or use it. So we use traction as a very uh, important proxy for the other metrics for us or the other pillars uh, and those other attributes are in order as i mentioned you know we look at team the most and it's very difficult to assess an individual or a team at the founding stage of a company to say they're going to be the next unicorn we just don't know none of us are genius pickers like that even the most famous vcs it's hard for them to know right in any environment whether it's an emerging market or not so That's why we employ this other, you know, the fund structure we talked about earlier is because, you know, if you don't know, then how do you move into a market and invest heavily and invest friendly, invest fast and early? It's difficult to do. So we mitigate the risk on the structure side 
and just go with our gut. We have a, a rubric that we've developed for over, you know, for me, 25 years of my experience, my partner, 10 years of investing. And before that, he was in finance and banking. And we start to just develop a rubric based on these attributes. And so you can quickly identify uh, whether a, a, an opportunity presented to you could be uh, a good fit. Yeah. Of course, you, you go you go into deeper due diligence as well. Um, but we have like sort of tiers of of uh, cr- uh, of assessment. So the first one we look at a deal comes in, we say it's not a fit for the fund or it is a fit for the fund. If it's a fit, we do what we call like a snap judgment. So I look at it, I see that what they're talking about. I see what they're trying to do. Uh, try to marry that with what I know about these markets and what these industries and whether this could work as if they're, if their assumptions are correct, if so, we'll ask for a phone call and we'll take it to the next step. So those two first ones are are real quick. Then the third one is, you know, really getting to know the team, seeing what kind of people they are. The people part is so important um, and seeing how they interact with each other if it's more than one. So what are we looking for? We're looking for uh, uh, signs of resilience, signs of grit, and signs of a bias towards execution, um, not just ponderers with ideas. And, you know, I used to be that in my early entrepreneurship days. Uh, I used to come up with ideas all the time. But executing on them is a totally different story, right? So um, yeah. we look for those kinds of ca- characteristics of the person. Yeah, that, that that's that's good. I like I love how you spell it out in such a specific way. We all know that, but it's nice to hear, you know, to hear it spelled out. So you mentioned earlier how um, part of your mission is also to impact, uh, to have like a broad impact. How does doing something like this over the next few years? Do you think how does it affect? you know, the, the, not just the ecosystem, because we always look at things from the perspective of the founders, but how does it affect the actual um, region that you're investing in? Yeah, I mean, this is really, I think, near and dear to me because I grew up in the U.S. I was born there, lived my whole career there, uh, you know, and, and I left my job. I was working at Google for almost seven years, and I left that job to do this and in the region, and now I've moved out here. Now, why did I do that? Because one, I, as a Middle Eastern descent individual, I always, you know, the region is always in the news every day, but not for the best reasons, right? It's just, I, I'm seeing this and I'm saying, like, how can we fix, you know, how can we make it better? How can we go back to maybe the golden era of this region? And what, what, one thing I've noticed as an adult in, in working in tech is that tech does have a very strong impact on the economy, on the GDP of a country and on the the workforce and job market. So it develops talent, and then it, it, the startup culture itself, this whole tech startup culture, why it's different than other businesses, is that it that culture is an empowering meritocracy culture. That's how it's meant to be. It Every, comp, every employee of a startup, a venture-backed startup, is supposed to get equity in the company. So if the company does well, everybody does well. The whole down the whole chain, and and that can create wealth. And if it creates wealth, that wealth typically will get recycled again because a lot of successful entrepreneurs or successful employees of companies that have done well turn around and become angel investors, and then the cycle can repeat. And so, and the investors who've invested will start to invest more money if they were successful. If you look at just the U.S., I mean, in the U.S., it was 0.03 percent of investing dollars have gone into venture capital as an asset class. That is nothing. Like, it's so tiny. 
So with its tiny size, it's had a massive outsized return on the economy. What do I mean by that? Well, over 40 plus years of of tech and, and venture-backed tech companies, uh, at least in the U.S., it, it has now replaced, tech companies have now replaced all the top companies in the public stock markets. So if you look back to year 2000, most of those top companies were fossil fuel-based companies. 2005, it was about a hybrid between tech and that. And now it's all tech. So almost the majority of value being created in the world is coming from tech companies, venture-backed tech companies. And uh, Hillary Clinton had said, uh, I think it was around 2015-16, she was saying, uh, and this was backed by either UC Berkeley or the World Bank, I can't remember, but she had said that you know, 90 plus percent of net new jobs being created in the U.S. are coming from SMEs and startups. So new companies, essentially. So we know that this gives birth to jobs and it gives birth to an increase in GDP. And the value of these companies has ballooned in the last uh, decade or so. So if we can apply that across the world, which has already happened, you know, it's not going to happen now. It's been happening for 10, 20 years where entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. And we've seen what they call unicorns or billion dollar valuation companies now rising from the east, not just from the west. And I think over almost half of all unicorns are starting to come from outside the U.S. So this is a really, really promising sign. And it's not just in China or India. It's happening all over Southeast Asia, which is a multi-country market just like MENA. So that's going to happen in Latin America. It's going to happen in Europe and across Central Asia. So we believe it's happening. It's just a, what timeline each region is on. So I would say the MENA region is is maybe five, seven years behind Southeast Asia. We've already had an exit of our first unicorn in the region, which was Kareem to Uber. Um, We're having an increase of size and frequency of tech exits here in the region over the last five or six years. So it's going to happen. It's a natural phenomenon that it's going to happen. And, you know, we talked about earlier that uh, entrepreneurs are, are becoming more frequent in the region. And it's because I think young people just look around and they see that, you know, they have to create their own destiny and hope. And if that means that, you know, they have an option before, between getting a normal job somewhere when they graduate to maybe trying, trying their chance at creating their own destiny and becoming part of something larger than themselves, why not give that a chance? And we're trying to grease the wheels a little bit in the region. That's, that's we as the people on the bottom and the governments top down are trying to infuse this culture of innovation. Uh, and I think the pandemic has only catapulted that forward by at least five years now. I love when my guests uh, have this kind of broader global vision about what they're doing and mission. And uh, it's really nice to see. And, and, you know, I think we connect with that here also. I connect with that totally. And so I, I love I love the way that I think that's that's kind of how it's the intent behind the investments that that you're making that make them, you know, different or unique to your fund. So obviously your intent is broader than just like, let's pick a winner, you know? So, so I mean, we all want to pick That's a winner. Right. Yeah, but there's a broader mission there. Yeah. So it's really good. So Sharif, um, I need you to be completely honest and transparent. Who will be your first investment with VC Plus? Uh, so so we, we are... We, <laughs> I, 
let me be uh, honest and transparent, uh, as, as I hope I always am. But um, we're, we're yet to launch investments. And, and we have over 300 deals already in the pipeline. 180 of them were deals that we were tracking between ending investment from our previous fund and, and launching the new fund. So those were you know, deals that came our way or we, we, we were tracking ourselves, seeking them out. Uh, we will go through all of them and respond to all of them once we have a line of sight to our first date of investment. Now, uh, after we made the announcement of the new firm, uh, Plus VC, we, we also put an application on our new website. And we got another 150 applicants in just the last two weeks since we announced the firm. So we have our work cut out for us. It's over 300 companies, and it takes time, right? But we, like I said, have a rubric for doing it fast. We try to be different from others in that we work very fast. Uh, we can go from first conversation to wiring money within two weeks if the company is investment ready. Um, I think that's a massive dis- d- differentiator for us here in the region, especially. Deals do take a long time. I mean, um, I won't call anyone out, but certain countries as well, because of certain processes, uh, deals have taken us 14 to 28 months to complete, which is absurd. Mm. I mean, it just kills the startup. It kills the founders. Uh, and, and we really believe that that's a, an important part of who we are and what we do. So we try to invest early and often. We try to do it fast. Fast we do and it, curious. Uh, fast. Yeah. And, and, and we do it on standard, globally accepted terms that are founder friendly. And we do that by using uh, standardized uh, documents. And those standard documents are used all over the world. So that's something we introduced into the region a few years ago. There's more and more adoption of that and acceptance of those documents now. Uh, and we will continue to use those types of things. We've all also localized those documents to the region as well. So I think those are the differences. And, and um, we hope that, you know, we can we can show other investors and it's it's been working i feel like uh, over the last few years that we we can show by example and if we're investing quickly and, and fast and with founder friendly terms because vcs are supposed to be uh, upside looking you know supposed to be optimists and we're supposed to be on board with the founders uh, this isn't a game where if you're a really pessimistic risk averse person you shouldn't jump into vc because it's just going to cause friction you're going to try to mitigate risk at the at the face of the founder with the terms that you're using, and it's going to strangle the company uh, and 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 limit its chances to becoming successful, which limits your chances of getting rich as an investor. So, do we want to be successful and and have high performance? Of course we do, but we we think the best way to do that is by letting founders be free uh, and and less control over them in the earlier stages. Now that is a bit naive, uh, we know that, but we got to get things going. You know, and, and so at the seed stage, at least, we're pretty loose with terms. We're, we're trying to be founder friendly. Once a company hits the first institutional round or Series A round, they call it, other, other investors, later stage investors will come in. They'll form a board. There will be more governance and, and things will become more structured than with adult, adult supervision. But we think at the earlier stages, just let them be free. If you believe in them, then you believe there's upside to be had. Put your investment in on friendly terms and and let let it ride. And again, that's why we use we employ the portfolio structure we do because we'll do a hundred and something investments per fund. We expect sixty of the sixty percent to go to zero. Yeah. It's part of the part of the process, and, and then the the others will will have decent returns hopefully. 
You're obviously so experienced and have a wealth of knowledge about all of this. Um, and I could talk about it forever, but we're going to eventually have to wrap it up pretty soon. Um, <laughs> I know your your family is waiting for you for dinner. Um, so I have this one last question. I'm I'm really not great at this whole investment thing. So maybe I can tap you for a little free advice. Um, sure. Shoes, good investment or bad investment? Um, horrible investment, unless you think they can be resold. Uh, I'm I'm guilty. Um, you know things things that are have an immediate pleasure, but typically wane in value over time. Uh, with what's called depreciating assets are always bad investments. But we do them because we like them. When we go eat at a restaurant, that's a terrible investment. You could probably invest that money instead. But but we also want to live the moment. We want to live today and and have a good tomorrow. So. I think it's it's always about portfolio balance, again, in our own personal finances, in our own life. Um, if you were to buy collectible shoes, which a lot of people do, and and then you can resell those at a higher value, then, then now we have an appreciating asset. It's not one that I understand very well. I don't understand why shoes See, I can, go up I could probably help you with that one. <laughs> and my wife, I mean, I, yeah. I think she would agree with you. We, we, have, we have shopped for, let's say, handbags and... Uh, if it, most people don't really know this, but in the last 50 years, the value of high fashion handbags, you know, the top five names, um, have actually increased in price on the store shelf. So the next year they'll go up another 5%. Every year they go up on price. So if you bought one last year, good chance that that bag is going to in, increase in value over time. And that is just with very specific high fashion brands. Uh, today, but it could apply to 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 clothing and shoes. I think the world is getting some some markets in the world, and it's happening here in the Middle East as well. Are getting used to secondhand products. Mm. So there are fashion brands here where they'll rent you clothing, or they will um, let you buy secondhand clothing. Yeah. Uh, you, typically, it's it's high priced items, um, and and because the value hasn't gone down, uh, but it's a really good deal for for us to buy it secondhand. We're not paying that, you know. Uh, initial premium for brand new yet the quality is good the condition's good and things like that it's just like a car a car is a depreciating asset in most cases but there are some cars that can hold their value a lot longer than others like toyota for example uh toyota lasts forever and people will, will would love to buy a secondhand one they, they don't pay the premium of driving off the lot um yet it holds its value for a very long time by the way, that was kind of a test question and you passed with flying colors because you really covered all of the possible facets of the ways you can answer that question. Because A, of course, it's not a good investment to buy shoes because that's wasting money. But it depends how you look at investment. Is it all about money or is inv can you invest in your happiness and in your which you covered? Exactly. So, yeah, that was really good. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, of course, as you said, the resale market now is, is really a growing. Uh, there's so many people uh, getting into that market. There's a I mean, I. I personally know how well it does in in Lebanon for instance um and even in yes. in Houston where I lived it's it's like a pretty good business so yeah thank you for answering yeah, that really in such be. a such a um a uh <laughs> a, a well-rounded way <laughs> so <laughs> well I think I'll pass with my wife too when yes, she listens <laughs> yes definitely thank you so much for talking with us today I really appreciate the time you took to share with us um all, all of this uh, amazing information Thank you, Nadia. It was an absolute pleasure. Wonderful. Well, enjoy your evening. Welcome to the Middle East. The Middle East is lucky to have you.
Thank you so much. That's it, my friends. Thanks for being here with us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you know who's on next. See you soon.